Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to What Matters, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and joining me this week is Michaela Hole from Agora Energy Vendor. Hi Michaela, are you well? Yes, I guess it's equally hot everywhere, so equally spread suffering. But uh, fine. Thanks for asking. Great. Yeah, very warm at the moment. Uh, very sticky last night, but uh, we, we'll carry on regardless. Um, Jan sadly can't be with us this week as he was called away on short notice to an event in Lisbon. So we'll ask him all about that on his return. Europe can create a clean energy power system by th- 2035. This ambitious claim has been made in a new report by climate think tank Ember. A power system dominated by wind and solar in Europe can be achieved uh, within 15 years at no extra cost above stated plans. But while it is possible, according to Ember, is it feasible? Our guest this week is Chris Roslow from Ember, the lead author of the report. Chris, thanks for joining us today. Really nice to be here. Thank you. Uh, Chris, could you maybe briefly explain uh, the conclusions of the report uh, under your findings? Around 95% of Europe's power system can use clean energy. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. That we, we find that decarbonizing Europe's power system by 2035 um, can be achieved. So if I could break down those main findings uh, into, into three parts, um, the first thing to say is 2035 Power system decarbonization, we think, is necessary for the Paris Agreement for the 1.5 degrees C goal, uh, and it works. You know, this is underpinned by very detailed hourly modeling, country by country, of the whole European power system. So, 2035, we think, is is a really important date, and we think we've provided the evidence here to show that that is uh, a workable system. So, that's the first part. Um, you touched on the costs in your introduction just then, and I think that is a really uh, a crucial piece of this analysis, we find that indeed the power system can be largely decarbonized by 2035 and simultaneously expanded at no extra cost. Uh, and that is compared to the, the business as usual paths, like you say, the kind of stated policies. Um, this is a really surprising finding. You know, How can that be with all this extra wind and solar and, and grids that need to be built? And I think to summarize, to simplify, the answer really is in the price of wind and solar. You know, the, everyone knows that the price of those technologies has fallen off a cliff in the past ten years, and the forecasts are that it will get even cheaper. So, so that's really at the core of our findings. And then the third part of this is requires us to take a little step back from the power sector. So, I've said that this decarbonisation, I've claimed it can be done at no extra cost. But when we zoom out of the power sector, what we're actually modelling here is an expanded power supply which can displace fossil fuels in other parts of the economy, in heating, in transport. Um, we, we, we're assuming that we can electrify these sectors even further. And when we factor in the displaced fossil fuels, we actually find that the savings Europe can make adds up to up to a trillion euros by 2035. So the power system, we think, can be decarbonized at no extra cost. And then when you look at the wider picture, you're actually saving costs by 2035. So to kind of try to wrap all that up in one in one kind of summary, I would say acting faster to decarbonize the power sector, it quickly pays off. Or to flip that around, you know, delaying action uh, will actually cost Europe more. Some of the conclusions from the report, uh, the annual growth in wind and solar capacity needs to quadruple by 2025 compared to the last decade. Uh, coal needs to be phased out by 2030. Unabated gas needs to be re- to reduced to less than 5% of generation by 2035. Doubling interconnection capacity by 2035. Uh, no new baseload of unabated gas plants need to be commissioned beyond those expected by 2025. Um, your modeling shows this is feasible and cost effective. Uh, but is it realistic, especially given the current crises of energy prices and uh, Russia's aggression towards Ukraine and uh, yeah, everything and the supply chain crunch that we're seeing uh, around the world? 
Yeah, you're you're completely right to to point out that we're kind of saying some pretty we're setting some pretty big challenges here for the power sector and for the infrastructure required. Um, on the point about the current situation, you know, the, the, the fossil fuel crisis, the gas crisis that we're in right now. I mean, just the very first thing to say on that, I think, is is the high price of fossil fuels and the volatility of those prices, the security risk that that, that those that reliance on fossil fuels presents to Europe only strengthens the case for accelerating decarbonisation. Um, but of course, it would be inappropriate not to talk about the very real challenges on the ground of actually making this happen. So if I could take these technologies, if you like, one by one, um, I think it's appropriate to start with wind, with wind and solar because um, these really are the key technologies to making this happen. Um, and you're right. So what, what we find is deployment. So the number of gigawatts added per year uh, needs to at least quadruple uh, kind of very quickly. And we need to sustain those levels as Europe until 2035. Um, the end result of that in 2035 will be a much um, radically bigger fleet of wind farms and, and solar farms. Um, and there are very real barriers to that, that happening uh, right now. But the good news is that we have a pretty good idea, you know, as Europe about what these barriers are. So for for wind and solar, there are some shared there are some shared issues. So what we hear loud and clear from the industry and from researchers on this um, is that, that permitting is a huge issue. Uh, it's just too slow. Uh, the procedures are too complicated, and there's there's a lack of capacity at the kind of local level to process these projects quickly enough. So that that's a clear area of focus that that every member state, every nation in Europe needs to needs to address. The second big challenge uh, is grid connection. So there are, in some countries in Europe, there are projects queuing up to be added to the grid that they want to start providing this clean energy, clean, cheap energy to the grid, but they've been prevented from doing so by a lack of access to the grid. Um, and I think it's instructive to reflect on, on why that's the case. And I would argue that that's a result of a lack of foresight and a lack of anticipatory investment in grids uh, in the past you know, few years, past decade, I think. Uh, and this is why I really want to emphasize you know, the, the direction of travel and the importance of expanding wind and solar because grid expansion has a, has a lead time. You know, these investments don't happen overnight. So this expansion of wind and solar really needs to be in the planning right now. And the, the appropriate investments and the improvements to permitting need to be happening now to enable this uh, expansion to happen uh, in a timely way to get us to this 2035 clean power system. So that that's the wind and solar challenge, and I'll I'll quickly cover um, the fossil fuel side as well. Um, so you're right that we find that coal has to, has to be phased out of the European system by 2030. This is not a new finding. We've known for a while. I think. European civil society has been collectively calling for this for a while, for the to be aligned with 1.5 degrees C as Europe. Um, and 23 countries now have um, announced plans to, to, to go beyond coal, to phase out coal in their countries. Um, and what we see actually is um, most of those pledges are by 2030. Some of them are a bit later. I'm, I'm thinking of Germany, Czechia, um, not quite meeting that requirement, but... There is a trend here. So what we've seen over the past five or 10 years is that once a country sets that direction to move beyond coal, the date often creeps forward. So once the direction of travel is set, um, things happen. Wind and solar economics are so favorable that actually that transition tends to happen faster than the kind of more cautious government announcements that's made in the first place. And I don't think, I don't think the situation right now where we're seeing a mini a mini, mini resurgence in coal in Europe. I don't think that changes that longer term direction of travel. Can I come in? I'm sorry, can I come in on this? Because yes, I please. just saw Ember tweeting about this, no? Um, because everywhere you read now, now these days, coal is having a comeback, you know, um, emissions go up in the power sector. Uh, and then Ember tweeted this morning, coal is not making a comeback. In Europe, and that you identified four countries, like amongst them Germany and Austria, who want to come back with coal, but you see only a limited impact in terms of GHG emission. Can you 
can you can you specify a bit more why you're so optimistic um, and how much increase you see? Because I vaguely remember having seen also a bit other figures. But please go ahead. What's behind this? Yeah, of course. I think it's important to be to be honest about this moment that we're in, and we are seeing. Uh, as I said, a mini a mini resurgence in coal in in Europe, um, but we're we're pretty confident that it's a short term effect. Um, what's driving it is 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 the is the rapid need to decouple from Russian fossil fuel supplies. You know, there's obviously a big kind of rearrangement happening now in 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 how Europe imports its energy. Um, so there will be this year, perhaps next year as well, an increased coal burn. Um, but what, what we're not seeing is in the longer term, we're not seeing a significant backsliding on on the targets in, in the power sector. So some um, other research Ember published a couple of weeks ago now found that basically over the last one or two years, um, the renewables targets for the power sector in different countries across Europe have actually increased. So that direction, that progress is still being made in terms of the ambition on the 2030 timescale. And this was but can you be pardon me, can you be specific about how much emission in the short term will increase in Europe? Have you, do you did you model that? No, we haven't modeled that uh, immediate effect. Um, I think I've seen estimates of around five percent increase in power sector emissions from this from this switch from gas back to coal. but you you assume it will be temporary. We do. We think it's temporary. We think it's temporary and not structural. Mm -hmm. um, can I come back to your your study again with a question? Um, your 2030-50 decarbonizing power. And just to mention here, uh, Agora Energiewende actually did similar work, but only for Germany, also just now. So here and there, I might be comparing a little bit, but I can see they basically come to very similar results, obviously, huh? like how much gas is left at the end, how they run, etc. No? I guess the German case is a bit more specific because of our particular double challenge with coal and nuclear, which you cannot transfer one by one to all of Europe. So I think it's a nice compliment to have your EU study. Um, on the grid part, you talked about it already. Um, so your, your additional investment needs, they do include, I assume, the grid expansion, which I guess will also be quite massive. Can you differentiate between power and grid? Uh, in the German study, we come to the conclusion we need 40% more grid. And I mean, you talked already about several challenges. For me, that seems to be a massive one. Um, is it similar in your study? I completely agree that grids is a massive challenge. Uh, in our modeling, just for a bit of background, uh, the, ob the object of our modeling is, is the whole European system. So we don't provide estimates of extra grid requirements you know, within countries internally, we, but we do we do come to a number on the increase needed at the kind of whole interconnected European system level. And what we see there is, uh, I think it was mentioned already, a doubling of that capacity between countries by 2035. Um, the direction of travel is to expand interconnection. You know, that's, that's some good news, but we find that uh, an even higher expansion than is planned would be optimal. Yeah, and you hinted at it already that... Um the planning currently doesn't look so much in the future. No? So um, that basically it's planned on stated policies at the moment in, in the EU. And so the benefits of, you know, something that massively higher offshore wind capacity would need isn't coming out yet. And so I was wondering in your modeling exercise, because obviously it's always inherently difficult to predict the future but in particular for the power sector how do you how did you deal with you know storage flexibility innovation what were your assumptions there because i assume you don't just want to take today's world and add massive renewables so how did you what's the way to do this like um, yeah, exactly. Like you're assuming some more flexibility. Yeah, it would be nice just to understand better. I'm not a modeler. Uh, I was always on the sideline of the modeling. For me, it was always a, a bit of a black box. Sure, I'm happy to, to dive in. Um, 
mean, what, what I want to avoid doing is, is getting into a conversation about uh, a specific technology um, because, you know, the, it's quite appealing to some to imagine that a certain technology will come along and, and completely save us with this. But um, I think it may be more instructive to talk about the, the, the roles that we need for technologies in the future and this power system in the future. Um, you're completely right that our exercise here was not just to decarbonize the power system as it is today, but as I said earlier, expand that power system to provide more electricity for electric vehicles and, and heat pumps and electrification of industry. So we have uh, kind of this, this dual challenge of expanding the power system and decarbonizing. We were very aware of this issue of, uh, you know, obviously wind and solar are variable sources. So there's flexibility needed in the system at various timescales. Um, we need technologies that fit different profiles, that fill different niches in that future power system. And the approach we took was not to pick the pin pick the winners of that kind of race, that kind of technology race, but to essentially try to find out what the trade-offs are between the different options. So, of course, the model includes the te technologies that you would expect to see, like battery storage, like uh, pumped hydro storage. Um, also, I think our modeling is, is a bit unique or at least rare um, in, in the sense that we also include a role for green hydrogen and the kind of interactions between that and the power system. Um, so I, I said I don't want to talk about any particular technology, but I might break my rule here and just say that um, the green hydrogen's kind of life cycle um, fits very nicely with a high wind and solar power system because if we, if we expand the wind and solar fleet as I described, you know, we'll end up with a much larger fleet. And at many, many times in the year, that will provide a lot more energy than we need. So imagine a, a winter storm coming into the North Sea and the wind turbines there are harvesting all this energy. And it, it's a lot more than we need in that, in that moment. So then it gets stored, it gets turned into green hydrogen by electrolyzers. Um, it can be stored over long time scales relatively cheaply and then burned through turbines at a later stage when we need it. So that's our kind of seasonal seasonal energy storage solution in this, but we also need storage at the hourly level, um, flexibility at the hourly level, and uh, kind of weekly timescales as well. And uh, I'm happy to go into how they look in our model, but um, yeah, maybe I'll hand back to you. Thanks. Since you broke your rule already, um, yeah. But um, so coming back because you said. Um, we need to quadruple wind and solar in Europe to get to 35. Um, is this roughly consistent with what we said in repower, um, where the Europe needed to go from uh, basically uh, 350 gigawatts installed and then somewhere 900 something, so close to a terawatt hour, by, and that w by 2027 or end of this decade. Is this a trajectory or do we need more? So your quadrupling figure, if I remember correctly, you said you need quadrupling basically from now on already. So if in, in that case, I think if you look at all these electrolyzers, what they will need and what you see for accelerated power decarbonization. I mean, there's a bit of a competition on the renewables, right? Does it all add up? It does add up. It does add up. So we, we uh, in our exercise, we provide, um, we, we made sure that this, that this system that we are building and simulating can provide enough green hydrogen for, for use in other sectors as well as uh, use in the power sector. And actually, the, the use of it in the power sector is, is relatively low. Um, on the comparison between Repower EU, uh, this is a really important point. Um, I mean, I think it's important just to set the scene that the, the Repower EU plan is, is not yet policy. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a proposal. Um, so even if we think that this is... Well, yours is also not policy. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but the, 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 question, the, the question is, is, is current policy enough? Absolutely not. Um, but then is, is this vision uh, from Repower EU the right vision? Um, I would say it goes a long way to closing the gap, uh, specifically in terms of 
wind and solar. I think you're right that it, it gets Europe um, on the path to having you know a terawatt scale solar fleet by by 2035. Um, obviously, it's only a vision for 2030. So what what we would like to see is a more explicit commitment to 2035 decarbonized power, which um, is still limited. Uh, some countries in Europe have gone that far. The UK has committed to that goal. Germany has committed verbally to that goal, but there seems to be a little bit of hesitation. Kind of. <laughs> Only at the G7. Yes, the G7. At home, not, you know? Yeah, yeah. So we yeah. think there'd be real... Well, we have the 80%. The 80% by 2030. We have the 80% by 2030. I think that we take seriously. And the thing with 2035, maybe not yet fully, I think one could summarize. Michaela, what do you think this report, uh, how it will be received in the halls of uh, the European Commission, if you're Country Simpson or D2 or Jorgensen, or, and you see this report and you're looking at stated policies, how do you think this report will be taken in those in those? Well, offices? I cannot speak for Ditte or someone, um, but I can speak as me being the former commission official and receiving EMBA staff. And I have to say they are usually clever in putting messages. So my hope would be that this would then also, because I remember, for example, one of the slogans where Ember was the first and which we then picked up happily in our briefings at the time was when you said for the first time a new renewables in the power sector overtook fossil fuels um, in the production. And that was a big moment. Um, it was in 2020. So pro also helped obviously by the slowdown of the economy. Um, but we were so happy to report this in, you know, all our renewables briefings. So voila, Ember was doing a good job recently. Um, so um, on the decarbonization, I think this report is will really be important uh, just to, because at the moment, a lot is about short term. Um and uh, I think there's a lot more to add. For example, you know, something that struck me, because every time we talked about power, it was always like, yeah, demand will increase and by 25, it's uh, by 2050 is double. But we never talked actually about saving solutions in the power sector. And that's something that recently came, you know, like you, on, I saw a lot on Twitter. Yeah, all these advertisement things, we could all remove all that waste. So be curious to hear in your modeling, did you also cut out a bit of, you know, inefficient electricity waste? Because maybe that buys us much more space also um, than just having this shocking, oh, my God, we need to decarbonize and massively expand. Um, no, I think the report is important. And I guess that's also why you did it and why di we did it to just keep this long-term vision. Um, because at the moment, it's a lot about short term. And as you said, well, but let's not use side of the power sector because it helps indirectly with its emission and cost and import cost reductions in the other sectors. And this view, I think, is super important at the moment. Um, and um, while well, I stop here, but I guess we'll come back also to all sorts of price interventions that we see. I would wanted to ask you also what you think about this, if this is in line with your vision for 2035. Yeah, Chris, let's, uh, let's start with the energy efficiency um, point. Have you factored that in? Buildings using less energy, more efficient processes? I know obviously direct electrification will bring a lot of energy efficiency as well. Uh, indeed, yes. So th there's a whole host of background assumptions uh, in, in this work. Um, what we wanted to do was to be to set out an optimistic vision, uh, not just for the power sector, but also uh, make sure we were being optimistic and aligned with what we think is needed in other sectors. So um, on, on building heating, uh, yes, we do assume that the rate of renovation will increase in Europe and the rollout of heat pumps will accelerate. We focus mainly on heat pumps because we see we think this is the, you know, the leading technology to decarbonize space heating. And uh, if Jan was here, I'm sure he would agree. He's a fan of a heat pump, I believe. Um, so we, we do assume that the space heating in buildings is, it becomes dominated by, by heat pumps, and we factor that increase in demand into the model. Um, on, on other efficiencies, um, 
we don't make radical assumptions about um, things like losses in the grid. You know, we're quite realistic that that, that might persist. Um, uh, but yes, we, we do assume uh, different different levels of efficiency uh, in other sectors. But I think it's important to emphasize that we we don't actually just provide one pathway uh, in this exercise um, because we wanted to make the point that 2035 clean power can be achieved in a variety of situations. It's not dependent on one single technology or one single intervention elsewhere in the economy. You know, if we don't renovate buildings um, very quickly, it's not like this whole thing falls apart. You know, so we we've done enough, I think, to show that this outcome for 2035 clean power is resilient to a lot of other um, assumptions and and energy interventions in the rest of the economy. But yes, our main vision sees heating be electrified, industry be electrified, and transport be largely electrified as well. Yeah. I think it's important also from, I mean, Ember focuses generally, you do a lot, you focus on electricity only, you know, that's a bit your your speciality. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, this message of it is electricity that is the basis and ext will extend into the other sectors, I think is really, really important for the systemic change, because otherwise we get this short lift replace this fuel by this fuel whereas if you change the entire system so i guess this really this focus on electri electrification is a very welcome contribution to the debate i think um yeah but it also shows how massive it is huh? i mean uh, what it means this uh, i mean the ia i think was the first one no? that came out with this we the industrialized countries have to be decarbonized on their power systems by 2035 and then the developed, I don't know, I think early 40s or something or 45. Um, when was that? That was only a year ago. And it, it seemed shocking at the time because we just got round to, okay, coal phase out does kind of make sense. Uh, and now it's actually, it, no, it was at the G7 and you just said, so um, it, but it's not far away. It's really not far away at all. And this, I mean, I, I don't know. I think, not everyone has understood just how much renewables we need as of yesterday. That for me is a little bit, yeah. uh, and I don't know, Ember, do you have any, like, how can we communicate this better? I'm also looking a little bit, you know, at this really focus on hydrogen at the moment where I also always think, yes, but the first step is renewables. Do you have any any top professional tips on how do we get this message across just how urgent it is to really get serious with the renewables? And do you see any place in Europe that actually is remotely on this deployment scale-up that we need? Yeah, I'm really happy you raised um, the IEA report because it, it, it lets me tell a bit of the background story of why we did this work in particular as well. So um, the, the IEA net zero scenario, I think you're talking about was released. It was before COP26. So I think it was in the summer or spring of 2021. And like a year ago, more or less. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we, we were actually already planning this study at that time because these modeling exercises, unfortunately, take a long time and drag out. But um we were really happy to see that that top line message from the IEA that, like you say, advanced economies need to decarbonize power systems by 2035. And actually, the rest of the world is 2040. So, you know, that's a huge, huge challenge. That includes the likes of China, India, you know, a really um, uh, big challenge. You know, Europe is Europe is already on the path, but you can't say that for, for everywhere in the world. So, um this was a message that we picked up and we think is really important to emphasize. And one of the reasons we did this exercise for Europe is we wanted to kind of zoom in on that for Europe, almost downscale that finding and show in more detail how it can be done, what would be required, the renewables build out, the grids uh, and all this, all this stuff. Um, and I think actually, given that the rest of the world, according to the IEA, has to follow just five years later, you know, I, I actually think Europe has a real responsibility to to show that this can work. You know, if, and if it doesn't work, um, if we fail, it, it's it will send a catastrophic message to the rest of the world. You know, I'm thinking diplomatically here about announcements at the G7 and can we spread that to the G20 and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It needs to actually be shown uh, here, and and I, and I think that leads into the second part of your question about 
are any countries getting serious about this and kind of showing it uh, at a country level? Um, I think you're, in Europe, uh, I think, yes, we have that. Um, uh, you know, in terms of the targets we have, uh, we mentioned before the UK aiming for 2035 decarbonized power system. Uh, I think that's the biggest economy in Europe that has that goal at the moment. There are some other countries like Austria and I think Denmark who are also aiming for a similar similar date with their power systems. Um, but in terms of deployment and planning, which is what actually really matters, you know, what's happening on the ground. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think, I think um, I, don't, I, got, I don't want to be too biased towards the UK because we're not doing everything right on climate by far, but in the power sector, you know, we are seeing the volumes coming through of renewables. You know, there was a big contracts for difference auction last week that um, brought on more more volume, and they're they're going to happen annually now. So um, there does seem to be uh, some good progress being demonstrated um, in 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 the UK. Um, it, it obviously helps that we have a huge offshore wind resource. That the same can't be said for all of Europe. So um, yeah, hopefully we'll come on to the, some of the challenges of deploying renewables. Maybe to do with social resistance and things like that. But um, yeah, the UK is in a good position, but it, I would say it is on the ground, um, uh, making kind of appropriate progress in the short term. I'm being outnumbered by the Brits today, I see. But it's totally fine to say it, it's going well in, in the UK. Um, I can live with that. Um, just one question while thinking about the UK, just for our listeners, in your modeling, what is your assumption of the role of nuclear? Without wanting to go further into this toxic topic, but just generally as an information to the listeners, because very often we hear, you know, we hear that we have to bring back the nuclear, otherwise we cannot do it. So what does your model say about this? And then we immediately change topics, ideally. <laughs> oh, it wouldn't be a power sector discussion without the nuclear question. So um, let, let's get it over with. Um, yes, yeah, so I think the first thing to say is we approach this study um, you know, objectively, without any preference for uh, technologies, uh, this technology over that technology, we, we tried as far as possible to let to let the economics dictate what happens here, um, and that also kind of generally reflects Ember's position as a think tank. You know, we try we we take a data driven, objective, pragmatic approach. Uh, you know, in terms of these different technology options. Um, we're not pro or anti-nuclear, um, despite what some people on Twitter uh, might say. Um, so we try to take that pragmatic approach, but we're, we are radical in the sense that we want to cut emissions you know, as rapidly as possible. Um, so what nuclear is, is doing in our model, um, we assume that new nuclear, it, it could be built uh, in Europe. We don't rule that out, but we only... Um, in, in the computation of these pathways, that only occurs if uh, it's the economic option. You know, these pathways are driven by primarily by 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 le the least cost um, to the power system, which ultimately will filter through into into lower bills. You know, at least that's how the theory works. Um, so we don't see any new nuclear deployments in these decarbonization mm -hmm. pathways. Um, so that the role of nuclear decreases gradually over time, and, and what that tells us is, is that despite what some people say, you know, new nuclear plants are not essential for a decarbonized power system. They, they could be part of it, but it will cost a bit more. Um, so that's, in, in a nutshell, what we what we find. <music> Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, Euros, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. Is it not worth paying that little bit more for a firm power supply that new uh, that nuclear can provide? Oh boy, this was not the deal. Completely <laughs> <laughs> just playing devil's advocate here. Um, yeah, so we do experiment with this question a little bit in in the modeling. So 
Um, as well as our main result that I just described, that there's uh, you know no new nuclear is needed. Um, I mean, we also um, we don't assume that nuclear is actively phased out. You know, we assume that the plants will close when their time comes. So it's not as if we're turning off nuclear overnight. Um, we, we also model um, what I would say is a best case scenario for nuclear. So we look across Europe and find the countries that are planning to expand nuclear, like Poland, Hungary, Czechia, uh, the UK, France, etc. Um, and we assume that this all goes ahead. So if we assume that this all goes ahead and it happens on time, which is a big assumption, and it happens on cost, which is a big assumption, um, then then the, the the actual cost of the overall pathways is quite similar to the to the one that includes no new nuclear, um, and that's because yes, you have higher investment costs in nuclear because the plants you know they have high upfront costs, um, but you save a little bit elsewhere in the system. You know you save a little bit on on in, on interconnection between countries because every country has that slightly higher firm contribution from its own domestic sources. You save a little bit from alternative um, firm sources like, uh, for example, gas with CCS or or hydrogen, um, those kind of alternative clean firm sources. Um, interestingly, you don't really save much from wind and solar. So the, the deployment level of wind and solar, it makes sense to build just as much, uh, a little bit less, but basically the same. So um, what, what you can't say is, Oh, we don't need to build all that wind and solar because we can have nuclear instead. Mm-hmm. Actually, they're not. Then you can't trade the two. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to take you away from uh, one controversial topic and bring you into another one. Uh, has the recent vote on the EU taxonomy changed your opinion or put your conclusions into any jeopardy? He will redo the report now. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to. I'll try to branch away from the report slightly if I can on this one. Um, so yeah, this is the uh, the EU. Giving the giving the approval of, of 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 gas power plants with some criteria as a sustainable investment. Speaking practically about this, the the criteria that, that is placed on gas plants, you know, I think they they have to replace coal and they have to be decarbonized by twenty thirty five. Um, those those criteria, you know, in theory are compatible with with what we are seeing in the in these models. Um, I think the, the the bigger issue with that is just is the fact that it sends a terrible signal internationally that you know essentially if you if you skim over the details, it sends a signal that gas is green, that gas is okay, which is a, a potentially a really damaging signal to be sending internationally. So I think in, in practical terms for Europe, I mean it's not clear how much gas investment this will actually bring forward. Um, we don't we don't see in our modeling that the gas investment stops overnight. We see that the the current pipeline, you know, there's a little bit of room for further investment, but from 2025, we don't need any more. You know, we just need to keep the fleet that we have, use it less and less over time. Um, so that that's what that's what I would say about that. Today, I think as we speak, they will be voting in the ETREC committee in the European Parliament on the Renewables Directive. Um, also on the ED, I think the vote already happened. I don't know. I try to follow here. Um, if you could give three messages to the politicians, can be only about renewables, but also about the bigger, like what would you think are the three most important things that you would like to see politicians to be decided in order to get us closer to your 2035 vision? That's a great question. So um, I think on the renewables target, uh, I know this is a renewables target for all of energy in Europe, but um, surely there's never been a stronger case for increasing increasing that. I think it's currently 40, and the idea is to increase it to 45%. And you know, I would want to emphasize to the people voting on that that by accelerating wind and solar, like that really can that really can be achieved, um, but it needs to be made a priority. You know, this this clean power system. Um, needs to be made a, a priority of energy planning across Europe as the most cost cost effective way to reduce our reliance on on fossil fuels. I think on efficiency, uh, it's it's the perfect partner to renewables. Uh, if if our mission is to lower dependence on fossil fuels and lower fossil fuel consumption, um, which is of course a security issue as much as it is a climate issue right now, so. 
energy efficiency is one of the fastest ways to reduce that consumption. I'm talking about insulation of buildings, renovation of buildings. That can be done much faster than building new wind farms, new solar farms, especially with the permitting issues that I was talking about um, earlier in the show. Um, and the third thing I would I would say is, you know, the, the economics are really are really on our side. I think that's one thing that comes through very clearly from our modeling is that is that this is actually the cheapest way forward. Uh, and of course, there are challenges on the ground about building this and getting social consent, political consent. But this is the this is the economic way forward. You know, if you choose anything else, a lower share of renewables, less energy efficiency, you're you're adding costs onto the transition. And people in Europe are already feeling the costs, aren't they, today? Well, the trend seems to be at the moment to work with price regulation, right? Uh, and um, we've just seen internally, I've seen a slide that actually the electricity price increased even sharper. I don't remember if it was Germany or Europe, than the gas price. So the focus seems to be at the moment on, oh my God, we need to dampen this effect. But I assume that really is not helpful on our journey to your scenario, right? I think the questions around the energy markets, um, they, 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 there's definitely a, a, a big risk that, that short-term interventions are not helpful for this longer-term transition. Uh, of course, it's important to... to protect vulnerable consumers um, from these from these unprecedented prices that we're seeing now. Um, that can be done through social policies. Uh, it doesn't necessarily require an intervention in energy markets. But so I, I, I would say that interventions in energy markets should have the objective of, you know, incentivizing investment in the things that we need. So wind and solar, grids, more flexibility in general on on both the supply and the on the demand side. It should be all about incentivizing the investment in in those areas. Um, and I think there's also an aspect here of um, it's quite confusing. I think to the to to, to the public. Um, on the one hand, you have people like me saying wind and solar is 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 insanely cheap. Let's build loads of it. Then they look at their an energy bill, and they think, well, we've been we've been doing that for the past years, but my energy bill is going up. So there's also a, there's a risk that we, we that we kind of mismanage, you know, this this moment. Um, the, the message that needs to go across is that wind and solar are the path to a cheaper system. Um, fossil fuels are what is currently setting the high prices, and um, there are some interesting ideas about how to decouple uh, that that effects um, of, of gas setting the price, but but that is. That is the reason, and we need to keep saying that, I think, again and again, is the fossil fuels in the system that are driving up these, these costs. But do you think this message is being heard? Heard sufficiently? Or are we successful there? It's difficult, right? It's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say. I, I think this winter, will, there will be uh, a big battle over this narrative. It will get ugly, yeah? yeah. <laughs> uh, do you think, though, if we get to that point where we get to the... Um, a 95% clean power uh, energy system, that these high electricity bills will be a thing of the past? Yeah, so looking forward, um, we do find that the, uh, sorry to use a technical term, but the kind of system costs of the these pathways come down over time as the system is increasingly dominated by by cheap renewables. And, you know, those costs will effectively filter down ultimately to the consumer, uh, either through bills or through other taxes, so it is in the it's in the benefit of everyone from from households to industry to have this cheaper and cleaner power supply. Um, I think there are also so that that's the big picture, but that's quite ac academic. Um, I would say there are also some changes that we need to see that both enable this twenty thirty five clean power system, but also benefit consumers. And I'm talking about things like. Um, demand flexibility and actually equipping consumers with the technology and the knowledge to be able to adapt um, and the markets to be able to adapt their usage compared to what's available so they can use higher amounts of power at times when it's cheap and there's lots of wind and sun 
and and less when uh, when there's not so much. Um, and if that's done right, that could reduce the costs for, for consumers um, and allow them access to cheaper energy. That's one thing. And another thing we haven't talked about is the idea of actually local people participating in this transition in another way, which is through actually having some ownership of these new assets, these new renewable assets. Um, so the, the opinion polls that have been done on the popularity of renewables show that um, you know, when local benefits can be demonstrated, there's a significant, significant boost in support for renewables. So when it comes to onshore wind and large solar farms, that could be a critical component in actually getting the consent of local people. Um, uh, and it will also, in theory, benefit them, you know, benefit their back pocket. You've mentioned uh, uh, cheap renewables a few times in our conversation. What does your modeling show you um, at the price, what, what the price of renewables will be up to 2035 and beyond? Um, and how much lower is it going to get? You know, we're already seeing uh, wind turbine manufacturers, solar power manufacturers, and their supply chains becoming increasingly squeezed uh, with, with ever-reducing margins, partly due to the auction system, partly due to a whole host of factors. Um, so, when, you know, but there comes a point where these companies can't go on. So will there be an increase in renewables and how does that change your model? So we, we do assume, you're completely right, we assume that wind and solar continue to get cheaper over time. Um, uh, in the last few years, we've actually seen uh, a bit of a, I wouldn't say an increase, but kind of a plateau of, of the costs in wind and solar. Uh, there have been some global resource supply chain issues that have, that have caused that um, to, to happen. Um, but we, we do, again, think that's a short-term trend, and we're not alone in that. The, the IEA have, have kind of um, said in their latest renewable market outlook that they expect that to be a short-term trend, and we will return to reducing costs of those technologies. Um, but even today, even today, new wind and solar is, is a lot more competitive than, than, for example, fossil gas. So the, while the cost reductions might have paused, um, temporarily, we think um, that hasn't changed the picture in comparison to, to fossil fuels. You know, the the, the competitiveness relatively um, has actually only increased compared to all the alternatives. One of the conclusions from the report uh, was that clean power pathways uh, allows direct electrification to reach forty to forty seven percent by twenty thirty five, compared to around thirty percent under stated policies. What needs to happen in order to support this expansion, or will it could it happen through just market forces, or does there need to be some sort of government intervention or regulatory intervention there? Yeah, I think I think the case for electrification is is very strong. Um, so, I, first thing I would say is, you know, in these pathways, that isn't uh, I would say that isn't a forecast for what electrification will become. That's just what we think uh, it could be by by twenty thirty five, um, and it will be higher. We think it could be higher. Uh, as we go uh, beyond that as well. Um, so, and, and I think it's worth maybe just explaining why why we think that is um, the path that should be taken. So, uh, in many cases, what you get when you when you replace fossil fuels with electricity is you you get an immediate increase in efficiency. So, um, you know, a, a heat pump is three times more efficient than a gas boiler. An electric vehicle. Roughly speaking, is three times more efficient than a internal combustion engine vehicle. So you immediately get an efficiency boost, uh, which makes a lot of economic sense. Um, and just practically speaking, as well with those end uses, clean electricity is is right now one of the most scalable and accessible forms of decarbonization in those in those areas. Um, so going back to your question about whether this will actually happen and what's needed to make that happen. Um, I, I think it varies by sector. Um, I, I think the sector that we have to worry the least about maybe is, is, is transport. Um, and I'm not an expert here, but uh, what I see is the share of electric vehicles going up faster than many people expected over the last few years. You know, the, the, share, the share of new registrations now is, you know, creeping towards 10, 20% in a lot of countries. So I think, I think this seems to be happening, uh, as you say, by kind of market forces, also helped by some bans on conventional combustion engine vehicles. Um, on, on, on heating, I think maybe the most difficult um, 
of these, and uh, I'm sure if Jan was here, he could expand on this. And you, you may have talked, you may have covered this already in previous episodes. But um, uh, you know, the deployment of heat pumps often needs to go together with um, renovation or, or efficiency improvements in in, in buildings. And, and you know, these are quite at the moment; these are quite sort of capital intensive things to do. So uh, I think there is a clear role for government here in kind of allowing this to happen. Um, uh, and as I said earlier, you know, efficiency improvements, some, w- one of the quickest wins you can have in terms of reducing reliance on gas and gas consumption. So, I mean, there's obviously there's co-benefits there for other reasons. Um, but what we need to see, I think, is, is uh, bans on, on gas boilers in new buildings, improve building standards, um, and yeah, support schemes for renovation and insulation, um, which we're seeing in some countries. But uh, I mean, to come back to the UK... Uh, you know, we're really falling badly behind on in, in that area, um, and I think industry industry is the is probably the most complicated in terms of trying to trying to forecast where this is going in terms of its the fuel mix. Um, but what I would say is, is is the incentives to electrify don't seem to be there. Um, we've seen pretty slow progress uh, in, in in that respect. Um, maybe the high fossil fuel prices that we're seeing now, maybe. Uh, an effect of that on industry might be to accelerate this thinking about how they can move beyond fossil fuels and into the alternatives. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, there is a big potential prize there because industry is a large consumer of power and relatively centralized. So if you can turn that into a flexible consumer and a consumer that increasingly wants to have clean power, um, then potentially there's quite an important driver there for decarbonizing the power system. Um, cleaning it up. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a final question just before we uh, wrap up. Um, the report, or your report, calls for a paradigm shift in the way the power system is operated. Um, so what do you see that needs to change? And is that the role of the, say, the grid operators uh, and how their role is going to shift uh, in the next sort of 15, 20 years? Yeah, I would expand this point um, to to a paradigm shift in the way the power system is operated and planned and I, and I think right now the, the planning part of that is is really important. So what we want to do with this report and our kind of analysis on clean power systems is, is to really show that this wind and solar dominated system, you know, it, it's the economics makes so much sense. The climate imperatives line up as well. You know, we want to say like this is this is coming. This is what it looks like. You'll need to be as a system operator. You'll need to be managing hours of the year where you're you're. The, the grid is fully powered by wind and solar. Um, I think the good news is that we we have the technology to, to handle that on on the grid level, you know. But um, again, these things have lead times. You need preparation to do trials, and given the short timescales, you know, we're talking about thirteen years time to reach this decarbonized power system. Like this, really needs to be happening now. So the planning for this needs to be happening now. It needs to be anticipated. And these grid strengthening and grid adapt- adaptation measures need to be um, put in, taken seriously. And that all starts with planning. You know, we're still seeing um, system operators across Europe publishing their future scenarios. And there's coal in 2040. There's there's more gas by 2035. You know, it's just not in, in any way realistic if we're going to uh, meet the Paris Agreement. So it needs to start with the planning. Uh, and then the operating because we'll need to have a much more flexible demand side, um, I think it's clear there needs to be more coordination between the, dis- the distribution level that's going into people's homes and the transmission level, which is kind of the the, the motorways of power across across countries. Um, uh, we need to see a, a more integrated approach in how to manage the system, um, and we need to anticipate again, anticipate, look forward to what the needs will be, what the challenges will be in this kind of more flexible system and start putting plans in place now to actually make that work uh, in, in quite a short time. Absolutely. Um, Chris, thank you so much. That's really interesting. I would recommend everyone read the report. Uh, before we go then, um, one thing we ask all of our guests is if they could uh, look into their crystal pool, uh, what would they see the energy system looking like in 10 to 20 years time? Obviously, we've covered that quite uh, in depth with your report. So I imagine I'm going to change it slightly. It's like, what would you like to see uh, the energy system being like in, in 10 to 20 years time? That's a great question. Um, so I would like to see 
um, that Europe has succeeded on this mission that we're setting out uh, in this report. Um, if it does, then it will set a really important precedent for the rest of the world, uh, showing that it can be done, it's feasible, it can be achieved. And if we do get there, um, I would like to see consumers really being part of this transition and having access to this clean, cheap electricity, being able to use that flexibly and generally reaping the benefits um, of, of a clean power system, uh, this cheap, abundant, clean energy. Um, and I also think that um, if we do that, then we'll have achieved the social consent for renewables, we'll have won that kind of public, um, that public case for renewables. Uh, and again, big lessons to learn there um, for the rest of the world if, if that can be achieved uh, in, in Europe. Uh, absolutely, 100%. That sounds really interesting there. Uh, finally then, let's quickly go around the table and see what caught our eye this week, something that's really stuck with us, something that really uh, captured our attention um, uh, around the energy transition. Michaela, what caught your eye this week? I'm first because I thought if I'm not, then someone else steals the thousand euros per megawatt hour that was <laughs> tweeted over this week for the French nuclear forward for the end of the year. Um, wow. Um, but apart from that, what I also saw is uh, the new project announcement for the Innovation Fund uh, yesterday. Uh, I think there's some really interesting stuff in there. Uh, also offshore batteries, but also new stuff like, you know, cement, uh, carbon capturing and cement, etc. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. Uh, Chris, what caught your eye this week? I, my attention was caught by, um, I, I apologize in advance, but it is also about modeling, um, but it's not just the power sector this time. Um, so the, the Zero Lab um, in Princeton in the US did a really interesting study looking at the, uh, the gas grid and the power grid in Europe. And what they found is that actually this year, I think by October this year, Europe could be completely independent of imports of Russian gas. So this is something that the Repower EU plan it takes until 2027 to achieve that same objective. So this is this is really cutting edge modeling. Um, it's coming out with quite a powerful finding that this year we can we can cut those ties with with Russia in terms of gas. Um, and just to very briefly explain how that's done, um, they see the need for a temporary increase in the use of coal, which we're already seeing. But I think really interestingly, they also strongly call for accelerating renewables. Again and again, we come back to this issue of accelerating renewables, uh, and they also call for, um, again, a temporary reduction in power demand, which is something that I hadn't really seen spoken about in many other, many other areas. The discussion is often about turning down thermostats and reducing gas consumption in industry and homes, but this is, uh, it seems to be calling for a more uh, broad reduction in power consumption, which is interesting. So that caught my attention. Yeah, really interesting. We'll have links for all of those uh, in our show notes if you want to read more. For me, uh, I was a New York Times article looking at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, which obviously is going through a huge renovation um, after a devastating fire a couple of years ago. Um, but what they're doing around the cathedral is to help uh, with cooling within the city. Uh, so we're recording this on one of the hottest days of the year. So I'm really interested in how we're going to make our cities cooler. Um, they're in, so as part of the renovation of the cathedral, they're planting over 30% more vegetation around the area uh, to provide shade. Uh, they're changing a parking lot uh, to become an underground walkway uh, that opens onto the banks of the Seine. Uh, and they're also going to put in a, um, a cooling system that will send a five millimeter thin sheet of water, uh, roughly one fifth of an inch, streaming down the square in front of the cathedral. Uh, enough to lower temperatures around the cathedral by a few degrees without actually flooding the area. Um, so I'm just I'm really interested in finding these new ways that these cities are going to adapt to climate change. Um, and uh, yeah, this is cool. I didn't read about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And obviously, they're taking the opportunity with with the renovation of the cathedral yeah. to uh, really make a few changes around the area as well. So really interesting stuff. Uh, and hopefully, I'll go visit when the cathedral is reopened in a couple of years' time. But so I say... Can't believe the podcast ends with a reference to the Notre Dame. Come on. Would you have thought, <laughs> would you have thought when you woke up this morning you'd be talking about the Notre Dame Cathedral? Um, sadly, that is all we have time for today. Uh, my thanks to Chris, Michaela, and our producer, Anna. 
If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Chris? I'm at CK Roslow. And Michaela? I'm at Citizen Sane One. Uh, if you have any questions for the team, or you can tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. We're going to be taking a short break over the summer, but we'll be back in September with more episodes and more fascinating guests taking a deep dive into the energy transition. So we hope to see you then.